This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. If you've got your Bibles, I hope you do, turn to Hebrews 11. Cheesy smiles. When you get there, always cheesy smiles. If I, if I send you somewhere in the scriptures, I need those smiles. Otherwise, I've got no clue that you're there. Okay, we're gonna figure out how this mic stand works. Okay, now that the comedy act is over, um, Hebrews 11. I have enjoyed this journey with you guys. Um, it is a pleasure to get to open the scriptures with y'all um, and to, as Dom looks at the overview of everything to get to dial in and focus on um, just a few a few key characters with you guys. I hope that you've learned about faith. I hope that um, it's more clear to you what faith is, what faith looks like, and how you can be faithful. Our scripture tonight is, is one verse, and it leaves a lot of questions if you don't know some of these Old Testament stories. So we're looking at Hebrews 11, verse 31. I trust that you're there. By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Who is this woman? Why did she have that job title? Who are the spies? What time period is this? How did this happen? Let's find out. Tonight, my goal is to show you what faith looks like one last time. Um, we will see that the grace of God is not bound by our deeds, it's not bound by our past, it's not bound by where we live, it's not bound by anything. So do you, do you guys know what senior superlatives are? Senior superlatives. It's the, okay, some of you are seniors and you are excited for these. A homer Christian used to do them, but they stopped because uh, we abused our right to be funny, I guess. Um, but a senior superlative is, as you graduate, you put it in the yearbook, and then you have a... Um, a little statement of your future right next to you. And so they'll, they'll have like most likely to succeed or most likely to own a business. Um, some funny ones, uh, wait, one funny one. Most likely to dodge the draft. Um, oh, a sweet one, most likely to make you smile. Um, so it's just a little bit about you, about your future, about how your impact in the school. Our character tonight um, is the least likely at least in our eyes. She seems the least likely to do what she does, to have faith, as it says in Hebrews 11. The tissues are making their way across the room. The tissues have successfully gotten across the room. All right, good job. Round of applause for that tissue. The biblical figure we're talking about was not likely to get her name put in lights. The least likely. The last hero of faith we're gonna focus on is perhaps the least likely. The person is most known for their job description, which is not an honorable job description. Her name is Rahab, and she lives in a heavily fortified city called Jericho about 3,400 years ago. The city is, it's got massive walls like, like, like the nation of Israel has never seen. It's got a wicked people living inside of it, and it's in God's war path. If Rahab is such an unexemplary character. Why on earth would we focus on her? Why on earth would the Hebrews writer honor her in the, in the scriptures? We'll find out. Through this, 
through what we'll look at here about this character, we'll, we'll see that God's grace reaches the faithful, no matter how unlikely a believer they may be, no matter where they are. The unlikely believer, that is point one, if you're taking notes, the unlikely believer. Number two, the faithful take action. We will see the faith of Rahab. And then number three, the amazing grace of God. Point one, the unlikely believer. Let's get some intel on this, on this woman. So by faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. Why on earth would the Hebrews writer feel the need to highlight the fact that this person is faithful and then immediately degrade them with such a shameful position? The setting is Israel, again, 3,400 years ago. Jesus came 2,000 years ago, dialed back another 1,400. This is a long time ago. They were still making things out of stones and stuff and bronze, which we only use for decorative things now. God's people are walking through the land, destroying all the idolatrous enemies of God. Moses brought them through the desert. Moses has died. Now it's Joshua's turn. He's the leader of Israel, and he's a man of war. He's an obedient man of war. And Jericho, this huge city full of wickedness, the most fortified city that they've seen ever, stands right in God's way. And okay, just as a, a brief history on, um, okay, well, if, if you're not caught up on your definitions, a prostitute is a person who does illicit things for monetary gain. Okay, now, Jericho, I'm not just, they weren't just mean people. They weren't just bad people. They were horribly wicked people. They built these massive walls and as a sacrifice to their gods, they put living babies inside of jars build them into the walls. This is not a culture of anything but cruelty, of disgusting sin. Um, so Rahab fits in just right in that culture. See, to us, there's a bit of a shock factor whenever we hear about th that job title. But for them, this was run of the mill. This was normal. Rahab fit in just well. And then one more very important fact to know about Rahab is that she's what's called a Gentile. If you know what a Gentile is, there are three people who know what Gentiles are. You guys are Gentiles. Anybody who is not a son of Abraham from his lineage, a chosen person of God, that holy nation of Israel, anybody who's not in that holy nation is a Gentile. God made his covenant promises, which we learned about from the beginning of Genesis, only to those people. Anybody else was excluded. Anybody else was sinful and dirty and were likely to be destroyed on these military conquests. So does it seem likely that the idol-worshiping prostitute Gentile would be someone of faith? We can only say no, but we know that ultimately salvation is not exclusive to those who are likely to receive it. So turn, turn your Bible to 1 Corinthians 1, 1, 26 through 31. So if you're in Hebrews, you go left. If you hit Acts, go back right. Romans is right before 1 Corinthians. We're looking for 1 Corinthians 1. Starting in verse 26. And my print is small, so 
Bear with me as I stare at it like an old man. 1 Corinthians 1, 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. We're fast forwarding 1400 years here. This is right after Jesus has died, risen, and then ascended. This is the ministry of the apostles. And in Paul's letter to the the Corinthians, he's explaining who it is that gets saved and how it is they get saved. And he explains in very, very clear terms that it is not because you are smart enough. It is not because you are strong enough to obtain salvation that you made your body submit and perfectly follow the will of God. And it is not because you were born into the right family that you were susceptible to an inheritance that is Christ. The gospel is not for the strong. It's not for the smart. It's not for the noble. It's for the weak. It's for the lowly, the foolish, those that we wouldn't consider noble. Why though? Because there are those among us, myself included, who have tried to obtain the grace of God by being smart enough, by being strong enough, by thinking when I was raised in church, come on, this is mine. It's not the truth. It's only by the grace of God that you get the gospel. And it goes out to the lowly to shame those who want to call themselves exalted. It goes out to the weak to shame those who think they're strong. It goes out to the foolish to shame those who have a big head. It's warning us against self-righteousness. God saved you, not you. If you're in this room and and you're saved, it's because, sorry, if you're in this room and you're saved, it's not because you're wise, strong, or deserving of salvation. We are those who formerly hated God. We are thinking of ourselves entirely too highly if we think that any other, if we think that there's any other reason that we're saved, other than by God's grace, other than by God's doing, we must not become self-righteous judges. Turn to uh, turn to Luke, Luke eighteen, Luke eighteen, Matthew, Mark, Luke, third gospel. It illustrates this for us. Steer clear of self-righteousness. So, as we're saying, First Corinthians, it's the unlikely not the likely that are saved. It's not the self-righteous. It's those who accept God's righteousness. Luke 18, anybody there? All right, I've got a few people people there. Luke 18, nine through 14. It's the Pharisee and the tax collector. You may know the story, but it says, Jesus, he, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with conceit, contempt. He says, Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, the most religious person, and the other, a tax collector, the most hated person. 
the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. It's hypocrisy. It's one man's, one dirty man looking down on another man's dirt and saying that it's worse than his own. It's ridiculous. It's exactly what we're talking about here. It's the one who's lowly, who's humble before God, recognizing his sin, not trying to exalt his, his power. That's the one who's justified. No matter how unlikely he is, no matter how much of a sinner he is, do you think that your dirt is better than someone else's? Do you find yourself looking at the worst people in society, the people that, well, I don't want to get to, but come on. How often do you think, you know, I'm not that bad because, hey, they kill babies. I'm not that bad because, you know, I don't say that many cuss words. I make good grades. Haven't yelled at my teacher this year. I come to elevate. Come on. Look how many people aren't going to elevate. Guys, that's hypocrisy. You're being the Pharisee. Do you think that your sin is better than someone else's sin? Do you doubt God because you think somehow your sin overpowers his grace? On the other side of the spectrum, do you think that you are way below God's grace? Do you think that you're unable to be reached by a God who is faithful to forgive? To say, God, my, my sin is entirely too big for you. And does that make you run from God? Have you begun to exalt people in your life who you think are just the best? That too is wrong you're not more likely to be saved than anyone. You are not less likely to be saved than anyone. It's God who saves and he saves those who have faith in him. In our lives, we must have the compassion and grace that God has for others. So that whenever we see someone that we would deem unlikely for salvation, when we see someone who is maybe backslidden or in sin, we don't sit there judging them for it. We help them. We pray for them. We give, God, we give people the same grace that God would give. And we accurately apply, apply grace to ourselves as well, not thinking too low of ourselves that we're unable to be redeemed. And as a way to get hopefully intensely practical, do you pray for people? Do you pray for people's salvation? Do you pray for those you love? Do you pray for those you hate? God's grace, like we're saying, goes out to everyone. Everyone needs it equally. No one, is un, no one is more unlikely or less likely to receive God's grace. So in our prayer life, guys, as Christians, we've got to be focusing on, 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 on others and praying for their salvation. Think of two people. If you're taking notes, wonderful. Write down two people right now. Write down the person that you love and that you want to see saved 
write down the person that you don't love, that you don't want to see saved, and pray for them both. Humble yourself and recognize that the one does not deserve prayer more than the other. That there are no people who are unlikely to be saved by God. Such thinking is for the hypocrites. There are no sinners who are best suited to become Christians. There are only those who are in desperate need of God's grace. So we pray for them all just the same and present the gospel to them all just the same in our, in our interactions with them, in conversation, and how we carry ourselves. So it's the likely, it's the unlikely, it's everybody who has the equal opportunity to be saved, to be considered one of the faithful ones. But how do you be faithful? What does that look like? If that's what's desired above self-righteousness or sin by God, how do we become faithful? Turn to Joshua 2. Joshua 2. So as I said before, Moses brought the people through the desert. Moses dies. When Moses dies, God picks Joshua. He says, Joshua, you're gonna be my man. You're gonna bring my people through the land that I have promised them. And you're gonna devote everything to destruction that I tell you to. And there's a whole list of nations that end in it that God says he needs Joshua to destroy. Jericho just so happens to be one of the first cities. And so the people of God are marching. They march right across the Jordan. They're gonna go and they're gonna take over this city. But before they do, they say, okay, we want some information. Be wise to make a battle plan. So they send in two spies. They say, look, why don't you go look at everything, report back to us, but especially Jericho, because we know it's big. And so the spies go to Jericho and they hide in Jericho at a certain prostitute's house, our main character. It's at this prostitute's house that they get found out. Someone snitched. Someone said, King, there are two spies are hiding in Rahab's house. Go find them. And whenever the police march up and bang on the door, she says, yeah, they're in there. No. She lies. Like, these people have come in, and she knows it, with the express purpose of destroying her way of life and her city, and she lies. She says, no, they left a long time ago before the gates closed. So if you send out your pursuers, pursuers and you find them, I mean, you'll, you'll take them easily. And so a bunch of men go marching out of the city, run off into the hillside, chasing people that are still in town. She hid them on the roof. So she made rope out of flax, it's called. So she hid them among the things that she'd work with. And at night, she goes up to the roof just to have a conversation. And she tells them that everybody in all of the land is terrified of this God that they serve. They all know that Egypt got kicked in the face and then they walked out of there proud. They all know that the Red Sea was split in half and that they walked through on dry ground. They know of a few military conquests that ended very favorably for the Israelites and they're shaking in their boots. Everyone knows the same thing and that's that they are in trouble. 
She helps the spies escape. They go off, but before they run away, she tells them, I want you to spare me and my family. All she knows about God is that he will destroy all the sinners and all the people that are not his people. And she, she pleads with them for mercy. They say, okay, since you've been kind to us, tie a red cord in your window. When we destroy your city, you and whoever's in that house lives. We see several instances of her faith in this story. It's not just craziness. It's not just a story. It's faith. Before we look at them all and seek to apply the truth learned from, that we can learn from them, we need to remember what faith is according to Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's like belief, but it's stronger than belief. Faith moves you. It's a kind of belief that cannot remain stagnant in the mind, but it must act, it must move, it must do, or else it is dead. Faith moves you. So first we see Rahab receives the spies and rejects her people. Rahab's first act is to, is to harbor fugitives, to harbor spies. It's, what does this say about her faith in these people and in their God that she's willing to completely abandon everything that she's known? At least two jobs, friends, a way of life, food, for uncertainty, and possible death. And then who does she lie to? She lies to the king of one of the most cruel cities ever. She is seriously putting her neck on a chopping block if she were to be found out. Rahab must have immense faith in God to do this. But what on earth does an idolatrous Gentile prostitute know about God? She's got faith, but in what? Rahab's profession of faith. So look at Joshua 2. Look at verse 8. So before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, now this is wonderful. Like dial in because, okay. I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of the Lord has given you, sorry, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan at Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And devoted to destruction is not just a butt kicking. Devoted to destruction means everyone and everything has been destroyed. And then she goes on and says, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. What does she know about God? So far, what we see is that she knows a few basic stories that, honestly, most Sunday school kids know. So basically, at a baseline here, we've got the knowledge of God that, that maybe a five-year-old has, except five-year-olds in Sunday school are not prostitutes. Five-year-olds in Sunday schools in Sunday school, are not horrible, dreadful sinners. 
What does she have going for her? Rahab starts telling these two guys about their God's deeds from the past 40 years. She has likely experienced and heard about these deeds from her family, growing up, and the entire nation is terrified. More likely than not, everybody is quaking in their boots. These rough, tough, horrible, wicked people are absolutely terrified. The God of Israel has become legendary in the land of Canaan. Everyone's scared. Everyone in Jericho believes that Israel is scary and that Israel's God, our God, is going to wipe them out. Basically, what she has said here, this thing is spinny. What she has said here is representative of what everyone's thinking. So why is she special? If the knowledge that she has is basically the same, we're all scared, as everyone else, then why is she the only one who we call faithful? Guys, what did we say about faith earlier? What do we say? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. It's an act. This is a kind of belief that cannot remain stagnant. Rahab was the only one of them that even though they all believed about the same thing, that was actually changed by the, by the belief. She was the only one who was actually willing to put it into motion. She was the only one who was changed by the belief. If everyone believed the same thing, that is because she's the only one that did anything about it. Faith resides in your head, yes, but according to James, brother of Jesus in the New Testament, if what resides in your head doesn't come out in what you do, then it's not actually living. Knowledge of God is useless if it doesn't change you. Knowledge of God is useless if it doesn't change you. It doesn't matter how much knowledge of God you have, it's useless if it doesn't change you. It doesn't matter how little your knowledge of God is. It can be faith like a mustard seed, but when it's faith in action, it's real faith. So we see that Rahab does have real faith. Thirdly, we see she asks to be spared and then goes and immediately ties this cord in her window. It's uh, verse 12. Verse 12 and 13. Um, now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with me, with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save me alive and my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. She begs to be saved. So Rahab had faith that God was the powerful, just God that she had heard about. And so all she could do was hope that along with being powerful and just, he was also merciful. So she asked the two spies to spare her life. It reminds me of an illustration that, that Jesus used um, when talking about being one of his disciples. He, he compared being one of his disciples to a king who was encountered by 
a greater king and his army was just hopelessly smaller than the bigger king's army. And so as a wise king, he sent out two messengers to delegate a peaceful surrender rather than be destroyed. Rahab is doing exactly that. It's recognition that this is a higher power, that I cannot deal with this, that what I've got right here, what I've got in Jericho is no match for God. And so she asks for mercy. As when you recognize the bigness of God, if it doesn't bring you to your knees, then you haven't recognized the bigness of God. Rahab was staring death in the eyes. The just God, the powerful God, had sent two ambassadors and they were in her house. And all she could do was hope. All she could do was have faith. And luckily for Rahab, our God is merciful. And the spies did give her a way to be saved. Rahab was to hang that red cloth outside of her window. And whenever the town was destroyed, she would not be destroyed. As soon as the spies left, she went and hung the cord in her window. That's recorded right here, verse 21. And she said, according to your words, so be it. They said, look, if any of your family is not in the house, I'm sorry, but they're gonna die. They have to be in the house with the red, with the red thing on it or else they're dead. She said, okay. And then she immediately went and said, according to your words, so be it. She sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. She didn't hesitate. The city was not being destroyed yet. That's actually maybe a month or so more away from this night, this instance. But she had faith and immediately went and tied the thing in the window. She was sitting there anticipating her salvation, waiting for her salvation. If that's how she was gonna live in light of approaching, the possibility of approaching death, how should we live? We ought to have the same anticipation. Rahab recognized the predicament and she did something about it. Hmm. It's an illustration. I figured out where I am. Thank you very much. So anybody know who Charles Spurgeon is? Charles Spurgeon is great. He's got wonderful sermons, wonderful illustrations, and uh, he provided me with this one. There once was a boy sleeping in his bed and in the middle of the night, he woke up coughing from smoke. His house was on fire. It had already spread to his bedroom. It was all over his door. It was coming under his door. And his only hope was to get out of the window now. Problem is, this wasn't Louisiana. They actually have a lot of houses wherever he lived with two or three stories. It was hopeless for him to jump out of this window and live. So he climbed out of the window and hanging on by his fingertips, as the fire blazed above his head, he hoped for some way to live. And then he heard a man underneath him scream up to him, boy, trust me, fall into my arms. And he looked down and he saw that the guy was really strong. He was a firefighter, he was big, he was burly, and he knew without a shadow of a doubt that if he fell, he'd be caught. Is that faith? You nod, you nod, yes. I would argue no. Faith is not a recognition of a truth. 
Faith is when the recognition of that truth actually changes you. Because if that boy had stayed up on that window thinking he could catch me and then died right there being burned, he'd have had no faith. But it's because he let go. That showed that he trusted. Dom and I uh, have gone back and forth with the same illustration about um, the tightroper. He could tightrope for days on end. He'll never fall. And he had a wheelbarrow. He said, does anybody trust me to put somebody in this wheelbarrow, bring them back and forth alive? And they all said, yes, the crowd's watching. And they said, okay, well, who's gonna get in it? And everybody got quiet. They all believed because they'd seen him do it, but were they willing to put their life on the line for what they believed? One boy did climb in the wheelbarrow. He went back and forth and he had a greater story than everybody else. It's faith, not just to trust, but to put your trust in. It's when we put our trust in the Lord. That's faith. Rahab's faith shined brightly through what she did. Not that what she did was more important than the faith itself. It will be no different for us in Christianity. Your faith will be known by the things you do. Not that it is the things you do, but it will be known by the things you do. So what should we do? Well, first we saw that Rahab rejected her way of life to hopefully be included with the Israelites. That's a lot like repentance. If you haven't repented, repent. Abandon this world, its wickedness, its cruelty, its idolatry. Embrace Christ. Secondly, we see that she believed in God, not based on what she didn't know, but based on what she did know, however small it was. So believe in God based on what you know instead of what you don't know. Don't let what you don't know of God make you doubt him. All she knew was that he was a wrathful, just, powerful God. But fully recognizing and believing and having faith in that truth, she humbled herself. She didn't know that he was gracious. She hoped that he was gracious. Don't let what you don't know about God cause mistrust in your heart. Third, trust in the coming salvation and live in anticipation of it. Um, B.B. Warfield, uh, a theologian, he said this, faith is voluntary anticipation. Is putting yourself involuntary anticipation. It's, it's exactly what she did. She had time before the city would be destroyed. She didn't just lean out the window as soon as the people showed up and wave the flag out the window. She put it there right when they left, not knowing when they'd show up again, hoping and waiting and praying, ready for her salvation if it would come. We are to live the same way. And it's gonna influence the way that we live And during that period of her waiting in Jericho for its destruction, ready to stop being a person of Jericho, to start being one of the people of God, 
As it's, I bet you her actions changed. Will your actions change? Will they change now and not later because of the faith that you have? Are you living in anticipation? Are you living thinking, man, one day, one day I'll stop doing that. One day this sin will leave my life. Or, you know, one day I'll go to heaven, but you know, that's just another thing that's gonna happen eventually. Are you living ready for it now? If you've repented of your sins and placed your faith in Jesus as your savior, then get to work. Because the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. We have people to bring with us to heaven. Guys, the thing about Rahab is that by herself, she asked to be saved and for her whole family to be saved and all of her family's family. This was no small group of people. The task that she gave herself was to get a bunch of really, really sinful people to start believing in God real quick. Is that how you view your time left here? You don't have much time left here. You might be spared, but are, are you seeking for others to come to heaven with you? In the time rehab had, however short it was, she acted as a proper evangelist. I don't know what she did, I don't know what she said, but she convinced a bunch of people that were just as unlikely as her to trust in God. There's gotta be a sense of urgency with us guys. Our faith has to empower our love for sinners and our seeking to have them saved as well. Rahab had faith that she would be saved and we know this because she did something about it. Our third and final point, we're gonna look at the amazing grace of God in this story. A few chapters ahead in Joshua 6, we see the actual events unfold. Joshua 6, 22. This is right where Rahab is actually saved. It says, but the two men who had spied out the land, oh, sorry, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. The city has been sacked at this point and she gets saved. So Rahab realized that the house was burning down. She went to the window and she jumped out by faith, leaving her care completely up to the amazing grace of God. And she was delivered. Let's hear about it. First of all, sorry, firstly, two spies went ahead. Two spies went ahead. They looked at everything. They came back, they reported to Joshua and they said, look, this place is gonna be, this place is big, but we've got it. And there's some faithful people in there too. And so Joshua brings all the people of Israel across the Jordan River. They march right into the land that God has promised them. And God tells them, okay, now to destroy this heavily fortified city, you're gonna need everybody to walk around it. And that doesn't make a lot of sense immediately, but to God, it made perfect sense. And I think that's all that matters. He told them, okay, Every day for six days, you'll walk around the city once. You'll make no noise. You'll go back to camp and you'll sleep. 
This doesn't seem like a good battle plan. Not a good battle plan at all. But on the seventh day, he said, okay, seventh day, here's where things get interesting. You're gonna jump over the walls and kill everybody. No, <laughs> on the seventh day, you walk around it seven times. Well, you see, I, I thought you were really going somewhere with the six days walking around thing, and then, man, you really knocked it out of the park. On the seventh day, we walk around seven times. It's seemingly ridiculous. He says, okay, now on the seventh time, and they're like, the seventh time. This, is this where we knock the gate down? Is this where we jump over the walls and kill everybody? No, 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 no. On the seventh time, you'll shout. It will shout. You'll shout. Like, just with our voices, just through voices. Okay, God. But it worked. They shout and the walls fell down. Uh, it's one of these verses here. On the seventh day, they rose early at dawn, marched around the city. Skip a few verses. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. This is a victory shout. You would think, march up to the city, have the battle, then shout for victory. No, 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 no. For them, it's walk up to the city, walk around a few times, shout for victory. And you're like, this is a little out of order. Where was the battle? And it wasn't there. They walk up, they shout, the walls fall down, they run in. And then it's just fish in a barrel. They don't detail the bloodshed, but they say that they devoted the entire city to destruction, all but Rahab and her family. And they burned it all down. God is faithful to the faithful, regardless of who they are, because of his amazing grace. It is in God's nature to be gracious. It's in his nature to provide. To provide. Uh, when God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the law, and Moses says, oh, Lord, can I see your face? And God says, no, that would kill you. He says, you know what? I'll give you something. And he, something is seen, but we don't know exactly what. We know that it wasn't God's face. We know that it wasn't God himself because Moses would have, been, would have died. But we know for sure that when God passed by before Moses, he gave him exactly what he needed to see God properly. And he, God, God walked by and he said his name. He gave Moses his character. He said, the Lord, the Lord, about himself, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses and all of the people of Israel needed strength to go into the land and to do what they were gonna do. They thought, maybe we need weapons, maybe we need, I don't know, something crazy, maybe we need extra strength, maybe... God, can we just see you in anything? And God says, no, it's, it's enough that I tell you about my character to strengthen you. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, have faith in that and go forward. That's the same God that saved Rahab. She didn't even know about his graciousness, his mercy, 
how slow he was to anger, the fact that he was abounding in steadfast love because all she had heard about were the things that made her terrified. But she had faith and she hoped that he was gracious, that he was slow to anger, and she was rewarded for it. She was not only saved from destruction whenever they tore down the city and they burned it, but she was grafted into the family of Christ. She was made part of Israel. And if you don't know, Israel is a fairly exclusive club. Um, You don't just waltz right in and then get included. Uh, There's actually no provision for people to do that. There is no test. America has a test. You walk into America, if you can pass the test and you can get a green card or whatever, and you stay here. It is not the same. You cannot just move to Israel. Uh, Exodus twelve forty eight shows us what has to happen. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover, which was limited to only Israelites, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. No uncircumcised person shall partake of the Passover or be part of God's people. Why is this action necessary? It's to show that you've got skin in the game. It's to show that you mean it, that you really do have faith. So if that action is to show that we mean it, to show that you really do have faith and only then can you be an Israelite, then it's by faith that you can become an Israelite. Which is what Rahab had hoped for. Rahab was saved from destruction and grafted into the people of Israel by faith. Faith was the only door into God's chosen people. Everything that made her an unlikely believer, all of her past and sin and identity as a Gentile was burned up in Jericho when the city was destroyed. And she now has a new, fresh start, a new life. That sounds just like our salvation. Our salvation through faith. But that's not all for Rahab because there's one more very, very, wonderful grace that she was given. Turn to Matthew chapter one. Who likes lineages? Lineages. Do you like those? Do you find it difficult to read? So-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so who fathered so-and-so who had a kid with so-and-so and then so-and-so was born and, and then it's a lot easier to say so-and-so than Zerah, Nashon, Solomon, Jotham, Hezekiah, Manasseh, all these biblical names. It's easy to pass over lineages, but this one is very important. So we started with Abraham at the beginning of our series in Hebrews 11. Abraham had Isaac. Isaac had Jacob. Jacob had Judah. Judah had Perez. Perez had Hezron. Hezron had Ram. Ram, Abinadab. Oh, sorry, Abinadab. Abinadab, Nashon, Nashon, Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz, by who? Rahab. If you don't know much about the lineage in Matthew chapter one, it starts from Abraham and traces a line through David, through a bunch of other people whose names I can't really pronounce, 
all the way to Jesus. Rahab, by faith, was grafted not only into Israel, but into the very family of Christ. It could not point more clearly to faith being the door to salvation into the family of Christ. What hope is there for me and for you if even prostitutes are welcomed into the kingdom and the family of God? Greater than being saved from death, greater than being, uh, becoming an Israelite, Rahab became someone who is named in the lineage of Jesus, our Lord. She went from not even almost possibly an Israelite to someone in Christ's family. Romans 4, 16 says, that is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, not only to those who are in Israel, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As way back when, when we started the series in Hebrews 11, we talked about Abraham. It was Abraham's faith that had him counted righteous. Abraham was the first. Abraham was a random dude who did not believe in God, who worshiped idols of his own, who lived in Ur of the Chaldees. If Abraham could be one of God's people by faith, then anyone can be one of God's people by faith, even a prostitute, even an idolater, even me. In Christ, by God's grace, through faith in the finished work of redemption, we can be saved from the destruction that sin has us destined for. We can be counted as one of the people of God instead of this wretched world, and we can be adopted into his family forever. God offers the same grace to all, and he demands the same price from all, and that is nothing, nothing in return, but belief in the freeness and sufficiency of his amazing grace. God offers the same grace to all and he demands the same price from all. You do nothing, nothing in return but belief in the freeness of the gift. Once upon a time, there was a king and this king threw a lavish banquet and he didn't invite all of his friends. He didn't invite neighboring kings or people that he wanted to impress. He invited all the homeless people in town. Every homeless man in his kingdom was invited to his house. It was a massive banquet. It lasted all day long. And one man at the end of the banquet goes up to the king and he thanks him. And he says, here we go, where is it? Enjoyed the food. Okay, he says that he, he enjoyed the richness of the king's food. And he told him that he was joyful to live in a kingdom where his needs were met. He thanked the king. He kissed the king's ring. He said, long live the king. And long live me and his kingdom. And then he left. But another man on his way out walked by the king and he gave him a small silver coin. 
And he said, I can only imagine how expensive this must have been for you. So I wanted to pitch in with what I could. How rude. What an offense. This banquet was to serve the homeless. And you would show up trying to pay? Which one of these men showed faith in the king? The one who put all his trust and gratitude in the sufficiency of the king's wealth to care for his every need. Our faith is not a contribution to the gracious, sufficient provision that was made. Our faith is not a coin in the king's hand at the end of a banquet that we could have never paid for. That is offensive. Our faith is not a contribution to the gracious and sufficient provision that has been made. The actions of the faithful are those of humble recognition of our own inability as well as recognition of our king's total capability. The only payment that would be right to give at the end of that banquet is thank you. Is thank you and a recognition of the provision of the king. Praise God for his grace that he does take in like that king did, the homeless, and feed them. It makes no sense that God only requires faith and not perfection. But out of his graciousness, he doesn't require our own works, but only our own faith in Christ's finished work. It's not our works that he requires. It's our faith in Christ's finished work. Let the amazing grace of God be what empowers you to live a life that is utterly dependent upon God. To be that homeless man who recognizes that his king has him. And then as you live by faith, in your first steps of faith, learn to worship. Learn to praise God. Praise God for his grace and provision. This isn't a repayment this isn't a coin in the hand of the king. It's humble gratitude that flows forth in worship of the king. If you've ever wondered why we sing here every week, we sing, first of all, to God because he deserves it, because he's worthy of it. And secondly, we worship God alone to encourage each other so that you and I can experience unity and peace because we've both experienced the same amazing grace from God. Do not neglect to sing. Do not neglect to raise your hands. The best way to spread Christmas cheer, if you've watched Elf, is, is singing loud for all to hear. Do you think it's any different in the body of Christ? No way. The best way to spread unity in the bond of peace is unified worship of one God. Unified worship because we were all just as unlikely as Rahab. We don't need emotional fluff to get everyone's feelings heightened. We need participation because there's nothing more encouraging than unity. So praise God when we're together. Beyond singing, praise God in how you study. 
praise God and faithfully taking notes and listening to the word of God when it's preached and then going home and applying it. That's just as much worship as singing. Don't you dare focus worship to simply what we do here on Wednesday night with our voices or on a Sunday morning in a church with our voices. Your worship of God flows much farther than that through your scripture reading, through learning, through understanding, and then faithfully walking out what you learn and understand. Rahab was unlikely so that we might be humbled in the realization of our own unlikeliness. She had faith to encourage our faith because if she could do it, I should too. She experienced the amazing grace of God that saved her and exalted her and it's the same grace that you and I cherish today. Rahab serves to remind us all that we are not, oh, sorry. Rahab serves to remind us all of, <clears throat> my, my eyes are not working. Of all, see, sorry, she reminds us of all that we have not and all that we are not but also of all that Christ is and all that we're given in him. What we aren't, he makes us. What we don't have, he gives us. And reminds me of this wonderful hymn. With this, I'll close. It is a thing most wonderful, almost too wonderful to be, that God's own son should come from heaven and die to save a child like me. And yet I know that it is true. He chose a poor and humble lot and wept and toiled and mourned and died for love of those who loved him not. I cannot tell how it could, how it could, sorry. I cannot tell how he could love a child so weak and full of sin. His love must be so wonderful if he could die, my love to win. Lord, thank you for your grace. God, thank you that your grace is sufficient. Please give us faith. Strengthen our faith. God, let us prove our faith. Let us prove that we do love you, that we do trust you, that we trust your sufficiency. God, if we trust your sufficiency, help us to live in obedience to your word. God, provide us with what we need. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, God, provide us. We love you, Lord. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus. Jesus.